president engulfed in scandal. Democrats in Congress determined to investigate. White House aides advising obstruction, arguing it was all political. The scenario may sound familiar to anybody following the current standoff between President Trump and the House over the fallout from special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia report. But we're actually talking about another scandalous episode from more than three decades ago, the Iran-Contra affair, when President Ronald Reagan's White House was accused of violating the law to carry out a secret foreign policy that involved selling arms to Iran in order to fund the Nicaraguan Contras fighting to overthrow that country's leftist government. But there was one very big difference between Iran-Contra and Trump's Russia affair. Back then, when Congress investigated, it did so in a, hold on to your seat, bipartisan way. The Senate committee set up to investigate Iran-Contra didn't even have separate majority and minority staffs. The Democrats and Republicans worked seamlessly together to gather evidence and question witnesses. Not only that, the Reagan White House in the end fully cooperated turning over documents and not invoking executive privilege to block the testimony of key witnesses, making subpoenas entirely unnecessary. Another huge difference. We'll discuss how the Iran-Contra scandal was investigated with a former staff member of the Senate committee that conducted it, and how much things have changed between then and now on this episode of Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, Clydman, some of us actually remember (laughs) Iran-Contra and uh, covered some aspects of it. Um, uh, At least one of us did. You probably uh, were uh, off in school or something. uh, I was uh, was in Spain. You were in Spain. Backpacking around Spain. Right. But it was a very big deal at the time, and it did raise sort of fundamental issues about presidential authority to conduct affairs in secret, invisible to the American public and without the approval of Congress. Serious, weighty issues, not unlike what we're facing today with Trump and Russia. Yeah. And I, you know, I do I do remember the hearings. I remember in retrospect, they felt kind of iconic. You know, the, the green felt table, the Klieg lights, uh, there was a kind of drama to it. And, you know, thinking back in retrospect, I think what I remember in a kind of hazy way was that congressional investigations were respected. These were institutions they mattered. that mattered yes. and that we, you know, we valued. And there was a lot of partisan, there was, you know, certain aspects of it turned into a partisan food fight. There were mm-hmm. intense legal battles. Uh, those were the investigations. On the other hand, there was Lawrence Walsh, the independent counsel, and that was sort of the real beginning of the politicization of that office, became very controversial. He lasted for seven years, right. raised a lot of questions about whether independent councils had too much authority. But in terms of the hearings themselves, they were kind of dignified in, in a lot of ways. Right. And there was just, it was accepted 
on both sides of the aisle and the public that Congress mattered, that Congressional hearings were important, that airing the full details of a scandal like this were important. And that is something that is very, very different and from where we Ronald are Ronald Reagan was a great communicator. Of course, Twitter didn't exist back then, but he was not going on television, putting mm-hmm. out statements saying, you know, this is a witch hunt and a hoax. He took it pretty seriously. Now, some of his underlings mm-hmm. were uh, chafed at that, cha- yes. chafed at that somewhat. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, the, the whole enterprise was, I think, uh, taken uh, fairly seriously. And I think what's fascinating, we're going to get into this with our guest, is that uh, the uh, the White House cooperated with the investigation entirely. Right. Well, uh, let's, uh, let's get to the guest because uh, there's a lot of really interesting aspects of this to uh, talk about. Well, we're really pleased to have uh, on the podcast Richard Ehrenberg, who is a professor of political science at Brown University and served as a Senate staffer for 34 years, including on the uh, Senate uh, Iran-Contra investigation. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So we're really interested in your vantage point as someone who um, worked on a uh, congressional investigation into a major American political scandal and to kind of look at how it compares and contrasts with the investigations on Capitol Hill that we're seeing right now. And there, there's some interesting parallels and uh, there's some very interesting uh, contrasts, which we'll get into. Sure. But let's start just by reminding that Iran-Contra has kind of faded from memory in a lot of ways. So l- let's just start to set the scene. Remind our listeners uh, what the Iran-Contra scandal was all about. Well, essentially, at the heart of it was the diversion of funds which were accumulated by secretly selling arms to Iran at a time when our government was claiming that that wasn't happening, taking the proceeds from that and supporting the Contras, which were the anti-communist forces in Nicaragua at the time, in violation of then existing U.S. law, something called the Boland Amendment, which uh, prohibited support by the government of the Contras. And one of the sort of you know, big questions from the beginning was, you know, in the old Watergate phase, what did the president know and when did he know it? This all happened in Ronald Reagan's White House, uh, sort of Ollie North was at the, on the national security staff, sort of engineering most of it. But uh, yes. a lot of questions you had from the beginning as one of the investigators about how high this went up. Sure. And to be honest about it, that question, what did the president know and when did he know it, remained really at the uh, end of the investigation as well. Because you never really got a good answer. Never really got to the bottom of that. Admiral Poindexter, who was the uh, national security advisor at the time, said that he never told the president about this, what they considered a covert action. And Ollie North testified that Poindexter told him he had told the president about it, and the president denied that he ever knew about it. And so in the end, that was never resolved, although the final report of the committee was nonetheless very critical of Reagan. And like the Russia investigation, you did have parallel 
congressional investigations and a special prosecutor investigation. Back then, yeah. it was an independent counsel, a statutory independent counsel. Right. Uh, in the end, a lot of the criminal charges really had to do with obstruction, similar to right. this case. You had Ollie North shredding documents, uh, lying to Congress, right. Um, and right. ultimately being convicted for that, although those convictions were overturned. Yeah, let me go back to what you said right at the beginning there, and that is that, you know, we had parallel investigations in all of those cases. And one thing that has struck me about the current uh, Russia investigation is really the absence of public hearings. You know that uh, in Iran-Contra, of course, very quickly, within weeks after the appointment of a uh, initially a special counsel, later an independent counsel, as you said, but very quickly after that appointment, the Congress set up a, uh, it really wasn't a joint committee, it was separate House and Senate committees uh, holding hearings jointly and ultimately writing a joint report. Which is quite uh, a difference from today. The idea of joint hearings uh, by House and Senate is oh, uh, absolutely. something it, you know, that it, you know, would almost yeah. be unheard of today. Right. Well, it's amazing to think it's only been 30 years. It was such a different environment, particularly in the U.S. Senate. You know, the Iran-Contra investigation not only was public, but it was bipartisan on the Senate side from start to finish. You might recall that a majority of the Republican members of the Senate committee voted or signed the final report. You know, you wrote a piece a couple of years ago for The Hill pointing that out, that right. back then, at least on the Senate side, it was a bipartisan investigation. You didn't even have separate majority and minority staffs, which that's, blew that's me away when yeah. I read that. Uh, again, <laughs> unthinkable today. Right. And for, furthermore, I think that same piece said that uh, there was no need for subpoenas because yeah, uh, right. because all of the you know the White House and other agencies relevant agencies just turned over documents without right. being forced to and no claims of executive privilege well and remember that one of the features of the the timing that the public hearings were happening simultaneous with the independent counsel's investigation was that the committee never relied upon the independent counsel for fact finding. Really, right. the committee did its own fact finding. It, it, in fact, received all of the documents that were turned over simultaneously with the independent counsel's receipt of that. You know, this is a point I have made repeatedly over the last two years with the Russia case, that essentially what happened is the Congress outsourced its own fact-finding responsibilities to Absolutely. Robert Mueller, and the Democrats bought into this. They said, okay, yeah, we'll yeah. just wait for Mueller, which was a critical mistake, instead yeah. of moving Absolutely. immediately that's like it. you did for public hearings and a, a full the, investigation. You're right. That's the original sin here. And it's permitted, really, President Trump to shape the public understanding of all of these facts, because you have the fact-finding investigation going on essentially in secret. The only information the public has is what the media has been able to generate, which has been much to its credit, but discredited by the president, of course, who calls it all fake news. And not only has that permitted the president, you know, by the constant repetition of no collusion, no obstruction, 
the things that he says. Not only has he been very successful in framing much of the public understanding of this, but it has reduced the central question to one of legality. Right. Uh, and of course, that's not the congressional function to worry about so much whether laws were violated, but whether the activities that have been taking place are legitimate and, and to bring them out into the sunlight and make people in the government, including the president, accountable for his actions. Yeah, it, it really does kind of put a fine point on how important these congressional hearings can be in terms of engaging the American people, engaging voters, because just to go back to, I think, what the point was that you were beginning to make in Iran-Contra, you saw the central players, uh, Ali North and Poindexter and and many of the others come before the Congress and testify dramatic hearings um, and, you know, which really focus the American people's attention. In the Russia investigation, I mean, we've barely heard from any of the, yeah, you know, we, we finally we heard from Michael Cohen, but it was much later. Right, we didn't before hear the House it. Oversight Committee. The Senate Committee, the Senate Intelligence Committee has not held a single public hearing with a fact witness on the Russia right, uh, right, investigation. Right. And that investigation is still going on. They're trying to complete their report without yeah. holding a single public hearing with any of the fact witnesses. Of course, right. the House should and take it back even further and think about Watergate. Again, the uh, Senate Watergate committee was holding its hearings simultaneous with the uh, right. with the investigation being done by the special counsel. And most of the most dramatic facts, the ones that ultimately led to uh, Nixon's resignation, were developed publicly during those hearings. I mean, everyone who was around at the time remembers John Dean's testimony about a cancer growing on the presidency. Right. And ultimately, the testimony by uh, Butterworth that the, the White House tapes existed. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to overdo the bipartisanship too much because, right. uh, as you pointed out in your piece, uh, you know, in The Hill, certainly there were people inside the White House who saw this as a political battle, uh, among them uh, Reagan's communications director, Patrick Buchanan, who said at the time, Democrats tell us this investigation must be dragged out to get at the truth. They're not after the truth. They're after Ronald Reagan. So from Buchanan's right. perspective, he he saw it as a, as a political battle. And of course, on the House side, the ranking Republican was Dick Cheney, uh, right. who did not go along with a bipartisan investigation, saw no, the events fact, very differently. Right. In fact, if you go back and read the minority report that was written by Cheney and his staff, it reads as a, a manifesto for the kind of unitary presidency that some have argued for not just in defense of Iran-Contra, but later on in defense of Cheney himself in the Bush administration, and in terms of the way that much of the Trump administration views his powers. Well, let's not stop there, because what was the effective end of the Walsh investigation? And that is uh, President George H.W. Bush pardons uh, the people, Casper right. uh, Weinberger and uh, others, who had been indicted by Walsh at the recommendation of, you know, dot, 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 Bill Barr, then right. the attorney general, <laughs> and now the attorney general yeah. under 
under <laughs> Trump as well. Exactly. So there is a symmetry to all and, this. And by well, the way, just a one one small note. You talked about the Minority Report reading like uh, manifesto for the unitary executive. I, I believe, and we're getting a little bit into the weeds here, but uh, that uh, there was a young lawyer working for him, for Cheney at the time, named uh, David Addington who developed uh, the fierce views on executive power and the unitary executive, which then uh, played out during the second Bush administration right. on torture and Guantanamo and all of those issues. So, so the past is prologue. So a couple of quick questions. First of all, Richard, what did you do for the in the Iran-Contra investigation? What was your role? Well, the committee had an interesting setup in that, as you mentioned, the committee staff was bipartisan. And each member of the Senate committee was permitted to name a liaison to the committee who would serve a lot of functions in the absence of the senator himself. And at the time, I was liaison for uh, Senator George Mitchell, who I worked for, who, of course, later became the majority leader. Right. So here's my uh, sort of final question on this, because I totally agree with you that the original sin by Congress in the Russia investigation was to abdicate its role to um, Robert Mueller instead of doing its own public hearings and full-fledged right. investigation. But And informing the public. And informing I mean. the public. But here we are sort of you know, two and a half years into this right now. We've had Mueller's report. People have been hearing about the Russia investigation, you know, since the, the start of Trump's presidency. Views are baked in on, on all sides. Is it too late, in your view, for Congress to do now what it did back then and hold the kind of hearings that you did during Iran-Contra? Well, I think it's late. I, I'm, I, I'm not sure I would label it uh, too late because there's so much even about what's on the public record in written form. I mean, what percentage of the American public do you think has read the Mueller report? It's minuscule compared to what the drama that public hearings would be. And if, if the news is correct that Mueller doesn't want to testify in public, would rather testify privately, it's probably because he recognizes how explosive and dramatic that testimony would be just laying out the things that we're reading about in the Mueller report so that people really understood them. Well, that is the big question uh, as to whether Mueller will testify in public. If he does, what kind of testimony he'll give? Will it sure. be just a dry repeat of the written word in his report, or will he go beyond that? And, of course, then there's the additional questions of whether we ever hear from people like Don McCann and others right. who are central right. fact witnesses to the president's uh, and, obstruction. And the, right. the ultimate question for Mueller, which I think is answered rather subtly in the report, and that is, why did he shrink from labeling the president's obstruction of justice? I mean, he he laid out the factual material and uh, what is it, 750 former federal prosecutors of uh, both parties have said that that material is certainly sufficient, would be certainly sufficient to indict anyone else. So the question is, how central a role did the fact that he was precluded from indicting the president by Department of Justice memos, how central was that to what his failure to you know, make the final label that the president 
had engaged in obstruction of justice. And I think there's a question, too, now that we've seen the behavior of the attorney general play out, what was the interaction between the attorney general and Mueller in terms of his recognition that he couldn't go ahead and indict the president? Interesting question. Richard, I've got one last question and then we'll let you go. Sure. So you, you talked about being on the Iran-Contra committee when the uh, executive branch in Congress worked together pretty well and you were able to put on hearings that may not have gotten all of the truth, but at least uh, exposed a lot of it to the American people in very public ways. Now we have congressional hearings and congressional investigations where the executive branch and the president himself is ordering his people and uh, people who work for him and don't even work for him now, like Don McGahn, not to comply with subpoenas at all across the board to stymie this investigation. So my question for you is, first, how damaging is this in terms of the precedents it may be setting? And if you were a Senate staffer right now or a congressional staffer advising you know, members of Congress who are conducting these investigations, what would you be telling them to do? How hard should they be fighting to enforce these subpoenas? Oh, yeah. No, I think it's unprecedented. It strikes right at the heart of the uh, balance of powers, our Constitution. I think it demonstrates the contempt of this, even if not in the legal sense, although maybe in the legal sense, the contempt of this president, both for Congress and for the Constitution, the design of the Constitution. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm one who, I mean, I have been saying and have written for a long time that it's a mistake to undertake a, uh, an impeachment process, which is likely to be partisan, and that it's important to develop the factual basis so as to create an environment where bipartisanship might be possible. But, you know, I've, I've really uh, come around on that because, you know, I think it's to our national shame in a way that we tend to accept. We look at the situation and we say we debate whether or not the House should begin impeachment proceedings. We just accept that in the light of what is viewed as the fact that the Senate would not convict. Now, how would we feel about any other trial? And that's what the Senate engages in, is a trial of impeachment if the House impeaches. How would we feel about any trial if we knew absolutely or thought we knew absolutely what the outcome of uh, trying the case would be before the facts are even on the table? Well, an interesting question, although I do think uh, Justice Department guidelines are you only bring a case that you think you can uh, win and persuade a jury that you have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. But um, these are certainly uh, issues that we will be debating, uh, the country will be debating in the coming weeks and months. We thank you for joining us and giving us your perspective on this. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. Thanks to Richard Ehrenberg for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.